Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. First Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Let's pray. Father, this morning... Your word is anointed. It is God-breathed. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is forever settled in heaven. The grass withers, the flower fades, but your word stands forever. And it is this word we pray this morning, along with the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, would touch us in a mighty way. Grant us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the first sermon... On First Peter, we looked at one phrase, the phrase elect exiles. The positive of that phrase is that we are elect. We are elected to faith before the foundation of the world. The negative is that we are exiles. We don't belong here in this world. If, if you feel sometimes like well, I don't really jive with this culture. I don't align with the values of this world. Uh, That's a good sign because we're exiles. This is not our home. This is not our kingdom. Jesus is our king. The kingdom of God is our kingdom. So that was the first sermon. And then when Peter transitions out of this phrase, what he does next is very easy to overlook. And I don't want us to overlook it. It would be easy to gloss over the first sentence in verse 3 so we can get to what he is teaching. The first sentence that we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it would be easy to gloss over that and get to what he is trying to teach. It is in the second sentence that Peter is teaching us something powerful and profound, that it is God who causes us to be born again. But don't miss what he's doing in the first sentence. He is beginning with worship. That word blessed is exaltation language. When he says blessed, that is worshipful. He's glorifying God in writing. The word that Paul is writing when he writes blessed, when he's writing it, of course he's not writing in English, but if we would translate this, it would be E-U-L-O-G, It's the same word that we pull our word eulogy from. When we say somebody gives a eulogy at a funeral or you get eulogized at their funeral, it's praising them. It's telling the good times, the good things about that person. That's the same word that that Paul is using here is blessed be God. God help us to be people who don't wait until the person can't hear us at a funeral to say good things about them. How many things have been said standing before a casket about somebody that really should have been said to their face before they died? It gives us reason to pause and think about who today that we could 
bless, who we could say something to rather than wait until uh, they're gone and we're standing, they can't hear us. We're really telling the people in the crowd about this person, but how much better is it if we say it to that person? So Paul is exalting. He is blessing God. He is worshiping. Now there's life-changing ideas that are coming in the next sentence, but not before we worship. If your ideas about God, if your belief system doesn't lead you to worship, it's not fulfilling its purpose. Peter is writing about the greatest realities known to man, namely that God and how God relates to His creation and how God redeems His creation. Nothing's more relevant to our lives than how we can be redeemed. But before he does that, he's worshiping. Why? Because Peter isn't writing a textbook. He's not writing something just to communicate the transfer of knowledge. That's not what this is. Peter is teaching us, but he is teaching us within the spirit of worship. He's informing us head knowledge, but he's doing it while leading us into God's presence, which affects our heart. And it's not just blessed be God, it's blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Christ-centered worship. It is Peter acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Messiah and acknowledging God as his Father. He's placing Jesus within the identity of Yahweh. Peter is a monotheist. He believes in one God. He was and is first a Jew and the foundation One of the fundamental tenets of Judaism is monotheism, the belief that God is one. So Peter is not leaving his roots of monotheism and wandering off into some new heresy, splitting God into different parts. He is capturing the Father and the Son with language in such a way that includes Jesus within the identity of God, while at the same time retaining the truth that there is only one God. And he does it while he worships. If we don't have worship, if we don't have love toward God, we don't have anything. All the knowledge in the world. I use Karl Barth as an example because I've used him before because Karl Barth arguably is the most, was the most influential person in the church in the 20th century. Wrote millions of words. Pulled the the thinking of the church from 19th century, uh, very just liberal ideas that came really out of Germany and, and that part in the 19th century. And Karl Barth, who is from, you know, he was European, he lives in that part of the world, or he did, he's been dead for many, many years. Uh, but Barth would, with his writings, pull the thinking back to a conservative high view of Scripture. And he, the thing he's most known about, I think, is his high view of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus had been relegated to questioning his deity and just all kinds of a mess that came out of what's called German higher criticism. And Bart, I won't say single-handedly, but he certainly was largely influenced uh, in that realm. Uh, brilliant beyond measure, but Bart openly lived uh, what anyone in the church today would call a sinful lifestyle. And he was very open about it. Um, how, how can that be? is because he was engaged with his intellect, uh, but there was something there. And his mother wrote him words to the effect of, uh, uh, she feared that all he would be remembered by was this this black mark on him that he would not reject. Uh, No matter how influential you are, his mother said. 
This is what people are going to remember. And it's what today no one can write about Bart without having to engage in this part of his life. So it has to be more than intellect. It has to be more than just I've got these facts about God. It has to be worship. Paul said, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And here he is talking about a specific kind of love. There's different love in Scripture. This is a, this is a worshipful love. If I give everything away that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. For knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part that I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. For now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these three is love. What we aim to do every time we gather on Sundays here is to worship. We want to be a worshipful people. I've heard church called worship and the word. It was a really popular slogan a few years ago, worship and the word. You'd see it advertised. And the idea was the singing is when we worship. We sing, we worship, and when we preach, it's something else besides worship. I don't want it to be something else. I want to preach in a way that is worship. The Word must lead us into worship unto God. I am not primarily interested in communicating ideas and head knowledge about God, although that is important. But I want us most of all to see Jesus as King, high and lifted up. We must see Him as He is, exalted King of Kings and Lord of Lords, sovereign, holy, righteous. Paul is worshiping in that first sentence. The last phrase of verse 3, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what the Bible does is it strips away any claim we might have for the ability for us to save ourselves. You can't save yourselves. I have known people who have lived moral lives, a high moral life, good, clean living, kind, loving, that were not followers of Christ. Their morality didn't save them. Aristotle had this idea that he called first cause. And it's, the idea is that everything has a cause. This happens, but it happens because something caused it to happen. But the thing that caused it to happen caused it to happen. And so uh, Aquinas... 800 years ago, took this argument and he applied it to God. And he used this argument, he furthered it to prove the existence of God. And it, it remains today because if you go all the way back and something caused something and something caused something, what was the first cause? And this is what we call it, the first cause. God 
was the first cause of everything. He is the ultimate cause for everything that happened. He said, let there be, and there was. So everything that is comes from God. There was nothing before God. God didn't have a beginning. There was a time when nothing existed but God. And everything that he created, he created out of nothing. He is the first cause. And Aquinas argues this uh, at length to prove that there has to be the existence of a God. But 1,200 years before Aquinas made the argument that God is the cause for everything, Peter wrote something very similar. He said, God caused us to be born again. If you are regenerated, if you are born from above, you may have experienced it, but you didn't make it happen. That's the issue with the phrase, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I invited Jesus into my heart. That kind of language is anti-biblical because it's, I decided to be saved. I did it. I spurned salvation. Be like saying, I invited myself to the White House or I invited myself to have lunch with the King of England. I, I just caused this great thing to happen. No, great things like that happen by invitation. I don't accept Jesus. He accepts me on the basis of my faith in Him. And the faith that I have in Him, if it doesn't go beyond mental assent, then faith is just another way of saying I believe in Jesus. I professed faith. Saving faith comes from God. He causes us to be born again. That ought to strip away any kind of religious pride from us to say, if I'm saved, I'm saved because of Him. One great preacher said, if I get to heaven and Jesus asks me, Son, why are you here? I won't start the sentence with the word I. I'll fall at my feet and cast my crown before Him and say, I'm here because of you. Saving faith pledges our allegiance to Christ, mind, soul, body, heart, spirit. It is faith that justifies us, that place us, places us in right standing with God on the basis of Christ's work, on the cross, and on the basis of His resurrection. That's our salvation. But make no mistake, according to Scripture, God does the work in our salvation to the extent that Peter says God caused us to be born again, and God does so according to His great mercy. It's mercy that allows us to stand and sit here this morning. Divine justice? You don't want God's justice. I don't want God's justice. Divine justice sentences me to eternal torment, whatever that looks like. It's His great mercy, Peter said, that causes me to be born again. I guess I'm fortunate I've only stood in court one time in my life. Um, I came out of town as a teenager college town next to us and the 92 Camaro Sean I was telling you about earlier uh, not a good car for a 17 year old I was blowing out of that town on Halloween night and there were cops everywhere and two tickets that evening and I couldn't afford the uh, well I'd asked for court supervision and I don't know how it is here I've had court supervision here and I don't think I had to pay extra for it but there you had to pay extra in Illinois for court supervision. And I couldn't afford it. It was very expensive. So I went to court right before Christmas and I just wanted to plead guilty. Uh, I'd provide proof of insurance I didn't have with me that night. And the lady at the counter when I was showing the proof of insurance uh, before I went into the court, she said, uh, she said, hey, she said, the regular judge is off for the holidays. She said, there's a guy filling in and just heads up, he can be really tough. 
okay, whatever. And so I went and I said, Your Honor, I would like to uh, forego court supervision that I requested, and I would just like to pay my ticket today. And uh, he said, Son, he said, you asked for court supervision, and you're going to pay for court supervision, or you can spend the holidays in jail. In that moment, I wasn't looking for justice. I didn't want justice. Justice would have been spending Christmas in jail. Justice is what the judge can rightfully and lawfully do to you. Fortunately, that independent, tough 17-year-old went to a payphone and said, Mom, I don't want to spend Christmas in jail. <laughs> and I don't remember her or somebody showed up with money. Uh, she wasn't going to let her me spend holidays in jail, so we paid it and moved on. I wanted mercy. I went to the court asking for mercy. I just didn't get it. But that's what I wanted. Robert Bastion was the county judge where I grew up for many years. Incredible human being. I wish I would have t taken the time to get to know him better to ask questions. I was too young. In 1950, he was a pilot in the Air Force and his plane blew up on takeoff. He was burned over 75% of his body. His face disfigured when I knew him. He lost both eyes and both ears. Now, I think he could still hear, because uh, I, I remember speaking to him, but his ears were gone. His eyes were, he was blind. He retained use of one finger and he spent three years in the hospital. And after that, he went to USC Law School, graduated with honors. Just, I mean, I, I had him on my paper route for a few years. And when you're a teenager, and I can picture driving through his yard, getting up to the driveway and tossing the paper on their back porch. I think he was retired by the time he was on my paper route. His wife was the sweetest woman you will ever meet in your life encountered her all the time. She was just always nothing but just sweet. And I would later, both of them, serve them a hundred plus cups of coffee in a restaurant. Um, and every time she was one of the kindest people and they would come to the counter and stand and she would lead them into the restaurant. She would get the order and she would take them by the arm, walk to the seat and sit them down. And I look back at it now. It's like, oh, I wish I was I wish I knew then what I know now. Um, I just knew he was a former judge that I didn't know his story. I just knew there had to have been a tragic accident. I, I didn't know the story. Um, but just wonderful, wonderful people. I mean, can you imagine? He would have had every reason to be bitter in life and just live out his life blind, just in terrible shape. And he goes to law school and becomes a county judge. And I only ever heard good things about Judge Bastion. Now, being a judge, I'm sure somebody didn't like him. But I've only ever heard that he was a good and fair judge in my county. But all of those things about Judge Bastion, for all the respect I had for him, he was not capable of rendering perfect verdicts all the time in court. What man or woman is? No one can render perfect verdicts all the time. But the judge of the universe makes no mistakes. His judgments are true and righteous. There's a, there's a line in a song by Sandra McCracken that says, Whatever my God ordains is right. It's easy to listen to that and say, Amen. But whatever 
That whatever covers a lot of stuff. Whatever my God ordains is right. He is incapable of making mistakes. And it takes great faith to believe that God is sovereign. Romans chapter 9 has been a chapter that I've wrestled with for the past couple of years, and I don't have it all figured out. I'm still wrestling with it. The implications of Romans 9 are massive. But I do know from Romans 9 that whatever God causes is right. So hear what Paul writes in Romans 9. He's referring to Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament. These are hard words. Think about what Paul's saying. Though they, meaning Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. They're not born yet. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Here's the part about is God fair? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Why did God raise up Pharaoh to do what he did? That my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God is going to do whatever God needs to do to make sure His name is exalted. He's not that interested that my name is exalted. He's very interested in His own self-exaltation. That is throughout the Scripture. So verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? Verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Peter says it is God who caused us to be born again to His great mercy. And we should thank God every day. Thank you, Jesus, for that mercy that you showed us. This should strip us of all entitlement and make us the most humble people in the world. So lest we should balk at the fact of how God is the cause of all things, Paul continues to write and he says, So you will say to me then, so Paul's creating this argument. He's projecting to you and he's saying, okay, this is what you would say back to me. Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Paul's saying, who in the name of common sense do you think you are to be able to answer back to God and question His will? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded, the clay vessel, say to its molder, the potter, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable, honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Those are hard words. Those are hard in order to make known the riches of His glory. Again, He's going to prepare vessels for destruction. Why? In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I've wrestled with Romans 9 for a while, and I am still wrestling with it. That's massive. 
I don't know. Romans 8 is by many people considered the crescendo of Scripture. But I don't know of a chapter that I've wrestled with more than Romans 9. You probably spend your lifetime wrestling with it. I don't ever expect to get to a point in life and say, oh, I have Romans 9 all figured out and I've got these nice, neat categories. Um, but I know it's Scripture. And I want to, I have got to lay down my presuppositions and believe what's in the text. And that's not always easy to do, if we're being honest. So Peter can exult and worship within this reality because Peter understands what God has done for his children. You were not responsible for being born the first time. We talk about free will. You don't even have the free will to exist. Say, God was the ultimate cause of that, but your parents had a lot to do with it. You exist because of your parents. They were the cause of your first birth. God is the cause of your spiritual birth as your heavenly Father. John 3, Jesus said, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Flesh begets flesh, spirit begets spirit. Paul said, Ephesians, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace have you been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Dead people don't raise themselves to life. He raised us from the dead. I was dead in trespasses and sin. I wasn't a dead sinner spiritually that woke up by myself one day and said, I think I'll believe in Jesus. No, it's the Spirit that comes and causes life. He raised us from the dead. He caused us to be able to believe. So we are a new creation in Christ. And the, the fact of a creation, back to first cause, requires a creator. We were lost. He found us. We were blind. He healed our sight. He granted us the gift of spiritual vision. We were in darkness. He came in and shined the light into our lives. 2 Timothy 2, it is God who grants repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth. You may say, well, wait a minute. I, I chose to believe. Like I had to make a conscious decision. I'm not a robot that God is just pulling the strings on. I, I remember when I started coming to faith and I chose to believe. And I would say, well, yes, you did. But according to Scripture, your choice was a gift of grace that God granted to you. None of this is possible. That last phrase in verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, none of this is possible unless Jesus is raised from the dead. I, I take great comfort and solace knowing the Jesus who walked this earth, the Jesus whose words we have in the four Gospels, is alive today and is alive forevermore and will never die. And because He will never die, those who He caused to be born again to a living hope will never die, even if their body dies in this life. If you are in Christ, you are an eternal person. You will never see death. That's what Peter means then in verse 4, the second part. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now we as parents, we, we hope to leave our children something of value behind when we're gone. I mean, if we all have our perfect scenario, we all live to be very old people, die at a very old age, and then say, okay, here's, here's something for you. Uh, my wife and I were talking the other day, we've talked about Warren Buffett, um, one of the wealthiest men on the planet, has never given his, I don't remember how many children, I know there's at least one because I heard an interview of his son years ago and he said, Dad's never given, given me any money. 
He's not wealthy. And he and his dad have a wonderful relationship because of that. Dad said, I saw my friends who were wealthy give money and ruin their children, decided I'm not going to do that. Warren Buffett's son has whatever money he's been able to put together. I think he was a teacher or whatever it is. And he respected his dad for that. Now, I don't know. I mean, if Warren Buffett's my dad, I'm, give me a million or so. Just give me, give me a buffer. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I, I can't stand here and say I'd be totally okay with that. I'd maybe just help me out a little. Uh, but be that as it may, that's, that's how it was. And we all, it was like, no, I, I like to live, leave my children something. I don't really want to necessarily blow through all my retirement, you know, just hey, here's, here's a little something after I'm gone. But there's no guarantees of that. There's no guarantee that I won't die penniless. I mean, there's just no guarantee that I won't exit this world without a dime to my name. Or maybe in just a lot of debt. We don't know. We don't know what the future holds. But our inheritance in the kingdom, Paul or Peter said, it's imperishable. It's locked. It's a guarantee. What God has waiting for us for our inheritance is a sure thing. It is undefiled. It is pure, holy, good, righteous, and it is kept in heaven for us. It's like a giant trust fund that matures when we enter the age to come. We enter into eternal communion with Christ. But rather than it being money and spiritual gifts, Jesus isn't leaving us a Ferrari. That's not the point. It's knowing God. We inherit knowing God and His reality. I mean, can you imagine what it will be like to know God and all of His reality? I'm reading through John Calvin's Institutes right now, one of the most influential books ever written, uh, 800 pages. There are several editions. There's a much longer edition that I for, forewent. I don't, it was too much. I read what's considered the reader's version of the Institutes. He wrote it in 1541. It's 800 pages, that's the short version. And I'm reading it three to five pages at a time with pencil and highlighter, and it's just, it's just mind-blowing what a guy 500 years ago could write. I, I don't know that anybody today is writing uh, what they wrote back then. But he made a statement. <clears throat> Calvin said, spiritual wisdom is comprised of three parts. Knowing God, discerning His will, and living a well-ordered life. It took me five seconds to say that, it takes a lifetime to unpack that. To know God, to discern His will, and then to live a well-ordered life because you know God and know His will. I mean, that right there is the sum of good living. That, that, that could be one statement that Calvin wrote. You say, I'm going to give my life to that, knowing God, knowing His will, and living a well-ordered life. That's it's why you read books. Sometimes you come away with one sentence out of a book and you say, it changed my life. That's why you read books. John Piper said, books don't change people. Paragraphs do, sometimes just sentences. And that's why we, why we read. So imagine what inheriting, this inheritance to know God, what that means, what that entails. In His reality, in His splendor, and in His holiness, and in His glory. That is an awesome prospect to think about. I want to know Him. Paul cried out that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, being made conformable to His death. Oh, that I may know Him.
I close reading Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depth of God. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor has the heart of man imagined. My grandpa used to say, I think, now this is, I'm not unpacking this from the text, I'm not saying the text says this, but my grandpa used to say, and I think it gives at least a good metaphor for what that looks like. My grandpa used to say, son, I think in that age to come, there's going to be sounds that we can't comprehend now. There's going to be colors in the spectrum spectrum that we can't fathom. And he took that a little more literal. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard. Again, the scripture, look what it says. The heart of man hasn't imagined. In other words, Paul says, go ahead and think about what that might mean. He says right here, your heart hasn't imagined it. You do not possess the faculties in your mind and heart to be able to begin to imagine what awaits us on the other side. That, in one sense, is almost frustrating. It's like, I I can't even begin to think what that will be like. But in another sense, I say, oh, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. What have you prepared for those who love you? Jesus says, you can't even fathom what's awaiting you on the other side. Let's pray. Father, this morning, oh, we revel, we exult in that great and grand reality It helps us not to fear death as much because we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we're going to live this life faithful and we're going to some days feel like we're just slogging through the daily grind of life. But we do so with our eyes on a prize and a divine inheritance that is more real than anything that we could comprehend. The greatest reality in the world is you and your glory and your kingdom. And so, Lord, we live as elect exiles through this life, living faithful, righteous, holy, worshipful lives, loving one another, loving a lost and dying world, and looking and longing for your soon coming. I pray this morning that you would uh, grant your mercy upon us this week, that you would grant your grace, your power, your presence. Let the anointing of the Holy Spirit be with every person here. Help us to have a mind to serve you, a sensitive sensitivity to your Holy Spirit, that we would know that still small voice, that you would grant us wisdom. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you this morning.